Hello, Lanky Guys listeners. We have an exciting announcement for you. We are going to be celebrating the Catholic Liturgical New Year. New Year, New Year, New Year, which starts this year on December 1st. So the first Sunday of Advent, much to uh, a lot of people's not knowledge. (laughs) That was convoluted. A lot of people don't know this. But our liturgical New Year, that's New Year's Day for us. So the first Sunday of Advent, New Year's Day. So we're going to be celebrating both the beginning of Advent and the New Year with a live Lanky Guys podcast. So Thursday, December 5th at 10.30 in the a.m. at Drogo's Coffee Bar here in Boulder, Colorado. We're going to be doing a live podcast. Reach out. We're going to be showing it on Facebook Live. So if you're not near Boulder, you can tune in. You can interact with us. You can send us a little message. You can see what we look like, our pretty little faces. It's going to be a ball. So join us. December 5th. We uh, cannot wait to see you. Or hear you. Or not any of those things. Or or talk to you and see your messages come on the Instagram. Sense your virtual presence. (laughs) Uh, We can't wait. See you guys then. Bye. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Father Peter Musset. That's right, it is. And my name is Scott Powell. And you have joined us. Um, maybe unbeknownst to you. <laughs> Whether bidden or unbidden, we are here. Actually, you know what's kind of funny is that there's no real way to happen upon the podcast. That's the that's the antithesis of what a podcast really is. Yeah, you can't have like somebody accidentally turn the dial on the radio and tune us in. You have to actively download us. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is I, we feel very chosen that you're listening right now. Now I'm hung up. There's got to be an accidental way to stumble across us. <laughs> Somebody maybe you're else looking listening for, to it. Maybe you're looking for like a dieting podcast, and you're like, "Oh, the lanky guys. Maybe they'll <laughs> teach me how to be fit." Yeah, <laughs> or or somebody accidentally just like puts their headphones into your ear. That happens. <laughs> that does happen. It's a serious problem that we need to recognize. Thirty yeah. third Sunday of Ordinary Time. Our first reading. The end is nigh. By the way, is Malachi. The end is nigh. Oh, I see what you did there. Chapter three, nineteen. I can't. I can't make it rhyme with it. I. Oh, you're doing it. Three nineteen to twenty a. <laughs> I'm so defeated. <laughs> oh. I just didn't have That's it. Right. That's right. Our responsorial psalm is from Psalm ninety. Psalm. Psalm ninety-eight. Psalm ninety-eight verses five through six, seven through eight, and nine. And the response itself is coming from nine. Nine. Ba-ba-da-ba. No. Nine. Uh, oh, uh, I, I German. <laughs> okay, your second reading is Thessalonians. Did you say Thessalonians? <laughs> Thessalonians. Oh, conflation is what Dude, we call this that. Dude, this is a. We are the Thessalonians, uh, chapter <laughs> three, verses seven to twelve. Close enough. Uh, our gospel is then coming from the Gospel of Luke, chapter twenty-one, verses five through nineteen. And our gospel acclamation is Ooh. twenty-eight. 21-28, So here's what I'm thinking today. The, okay, well, before you get there, we are so happy that you did not stumble in to this podcast. Yes, yes. And we love you. And we do. We prize all of our listeners, mm. and we prize all of the listeners who have stopped listening to us. We're a little bit bitter, but we still prize you. Yeah, yeah. So if you way. know somebody who's stopped listening to Lanky Guys, just ask them about the episode. Just like, <laughs> just, you know, if you know somebody that listens, just like, <laughs> hey, what did you think of the last episode? And every Lanky Guys listener is always a little bit guilty when I'm to see them and they're like, yeah. I mean, I listen, but like, just not this like last one. I it makes me wonder who does listen because everyone we talk to sort of says, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I see the stats. I know somebody's download. Somebody's cat is downloading this every Dude, week. So Malachi, man, well, oh, I have no idea about Malachi. Well, before we get into Malachi, properly speaking, I, I here is one thought I had reading through. These are these are difficult readings, both in the sense of 
um, putting them together, theological, ba- they, they all carry quite a bit of baggage with them, so we say, shall we say. But the other thing is that they're all, I mean, they're kind of rough because we know there's this principle, right? As the liturgical end gets, as the liturgical year gets closer to the end, right? Right. You get having more and more readings about the end times and right. the end of things, right? The end of the world stuff. These so are, I mean, these are like, prepare thyself. And I have a lot to say about that. There is a lot of context that's needed for each of these. A little okay. bit. I'm not going to talk a lot, but but every single one of these needs some unpacking. Scott, to you me. always talk a lot. It's okay. Well, that's what that's, that's what, what the I'm podcast is. <laughs> I shouldn't it's be like, apologetic for doing my job. Yeah. The, okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to really talk on this podcast today. <laughs> I just like don't want to be interruptive to your life. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, I do want to be that too. All right, Malachi. Malachi. Um, what were you saying about Malachi a second ago? That you didn't. Malachi's, it's not one I was of those just, books that I, I was just trying know. to give you a prompt to know, give us, you. to drop your Knizzo. I was trying to kill some time. Your knowledge. Knizzo. That's, that's Dude, a good one. Yeah, man. Hey, I'm a child of All the right. 90s, and I'm never going to go back. To the 90s? Oh, no. I don't know what that I'm saying. That didn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we got we to gotta start just by giving a tiny little historical context into Malachi. So Malachi is, actually, this is really important. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's the last one, both chronologically, we think, and also in the canon. He's the last one that shows up in the Bible before you get to like Maccabees and stuff. So in Protestant Bibles, Malachi is the last book before the New Testament. And in Catholic Bibles, we have some of the Deuterocanonical, we have Ma- Maccabees and stuff. But it's it, what that means is this is God's last word before there are hundreds of years of silence before the coming of Jesus. And literally, this is the last um, sentence of the book. Well, not quite. That we get this week. This week. Oh, I mean, it's most mostly. Well, there's a chapter we like four. We're in chapter four. We're in chapter three. Three verse nineteen through twenty. Three nineteen to twenty is actually chapter four. I know, depending on the rendering of the chapters, so different translations actually have different renderings of the numbers. Don't let it confuse you. It's, it's still cool. the end. It's still the end. Okay, so um, Malachi. Wh- where's Malachi? Malachi falls roughly in the same time period of like Ezra and Nehemiah. Right, so if you remember these guys, uh, he's a contemporary of like Haggai and Zechariah. So what's happening is, so you have this. We've talked many times about the Babylonian exile, right? So Israel, God builds them up as a nation. They do all this stuff. They break the covenant. There's a civil war. They're unfaithful, and so as punishment, they're eventually Jerusalem is eventually destroyed by Babylon in the 500s. They're hauled off to slavery. Um, eventually a new king comes to power, defeats the Babylonians called the Persians. And the Persian king, this guy named Cyrus, allows the Jewish people to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, right? He actually gives them help from the empire to go back and do this task. Cyrus let them go back to the hill. I'm, I'm, I'm trying C- so C- hard to C- find C- a connection. Cyrus Hill. Cyprus Hill. Oh, that's... That was it was okay. That was a it was okay. That's, no, the, that was terrible. We're only a few minutes into the podcast. You got time. <laughs> we can build on that. <laughs> okay. We can build. All right, so the exiles go back. They rebuild the temple. The temple, the the next, the second temple, right, the rebuilt temple, it's finished in like 516 under this guy named Zerubbabel. In the 400s, this guy named Ezra goes back to Jerusalem. He brings a bunch of several thousand Jews. They kind of start liturgy again. And then this guy named Nehemiah 
goes back to basically rebuild the city. So Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of the the spiritual and the temporal powerhouses of rebuilding the people of God. Let's rebuild the temple. Let's rebuild worship. Let's rebuild the city. They build the walls back up. They do all these things, right? So Nehemiah is the the kind of governor that helps them rebuild. We tur- we're turning back to God. We're doing liturgy again. We're offering sacrifice. We're trying so hard to turn our hearts back to God so the problems that we fell into won't happen again, right? Right. But then something happens. Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer for the king up in Persia, gets called back. He still kind of works with them once in a while. Okay. So he leaves Jerusalem. He goes back to do some work back um, with the king, with the Persian king. He leaves Jerusalem for a time, and there's a saying, right? When the cat is away, the mice will the play. mice will play, which is the story of the rest of Nehemiah. So, the Jewish people who are back in Jerusalem they fall back into their sin. Um, everything, I mean, it's it's almost laughable how quickly they fall back into all the old patterns. So by the time Nehemiah comes back, he discovers that people aren't tithing anymore. The Sabbath is being ignored and broken. They're not keeping the commandments. People are intermarrying with pagan peoples and and worshiping other gods and divorcing. More than anything, though, he finds that the priests have become corrupt mm. and everything has fallen apart. He's like, you've got to be kidding me. That is the situation that sparks Malachi's prophecies. That's what he's speaking into. And Malachi is essentially this series of... Um, people think of Malachi as like a, a legal document. He's making legal arguments saying, God, what the heck? Here's what the people are doing. How can this be? What do we do? Here's all my complaints um, as to, to you know why the people have kind of totally gone off the rails, basically, right? So that's what the book is sort of doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So where we get it, where we kind of jump in, which is right toward the end, it's a really important moment because at the end, it looks forward to what God is going to do in the future. Now, again, I mentioned that ne- uh, Malachi, rather, it's the last Old Testament prophecy. So this is literally the last word of God from God until Jesus shows up. And what does he say in the last word? So I'm going to read what we get. We get a little shorty passage, but I want to read what comes after it, too. And what it says is he, he's watching all of these we're falling apart. We're falling apart again. We're falling back into our old sin and our own pattern. And so God says this to him. He says, surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant, every evildoer will be stubble. They'll be burned up. And the day, the um, and that day, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root, not a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. There's a great song by a band called The Welcome Wagon, which sings that one, yep. which is running in my head right now. I know. It's impossible it's not impossible to hear It's impossible not to hear it if you're Father Peter and I. Yep. And you will go out and you'll leap like calves uh, released from the stall. You will trample down the wicked. You will, uh, they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do these things, said the Lord Almighty. But it goes on. Remember the law my servant of my servant Moses. So how do you get out of this? How do we get back? Well, remember the law. Go back to the salvation history. Go back to the rules, the laws, the decrees I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, now here's the last word of the last prophet out of the last thing that the Lord says. He says, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Period. The end for hundreds of years. And people are like, oh, okay, cool. That's the last word. And quite frankly, the reforms work. They do, in a lot of ways, turn back to the Torah. They do 
um, there, there is, I mean, it ebbs and flows, right? But you have the period of the Maccabees where there really is a righteousness. They actually stand back up and they're like, no, we have to be faithful. We have to shun idolatry. Um, a lot of people do kind of fall off the wagon in the time of the Maccabees. And even after the Maccabees, once Israel really does stand up for her faith, the victors and some of the Maccabee brothers even fall off the rails and they become corrupt and they take the priesthood and they buy things off themselves. So it's messy. It still remains messy. But the thing I want to zero in on, there's two things I want to zero in on. Number one, Malachi says before this terrible and dreadful, quote unquote, day of the Lord comes, Elijah is going to come first you will see Elijah come and he's going to go and he's going to bring the hearts of the fathers back to their children, the hearts of children back to their fathers. And ultimately what it's getting at is God is saying, I am your father. You are my children and I want your hearts to come back to me. And part of how I'm going to do that is these, this preaching of Elijah. So later on when people see John the Baptist dressed like in the place of Elijah out in the wilderness, they're like, oh, holy cow, the prophecies of Malachi are coming true. This guy is like Elijah and he's preaching these things and actually says in Luke, he's trying to bring the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of children back to their fathers. That's what John the Baptist is up to. And people are like, that means this is it. That means the day of the Lord is coming, which raises this question. Okay, what's the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord, it's this theme that's, it's here in Malachi, but it's in all sorts of other prophetic books as well about this day of punishment, this day of wrath, this day of curse. And people tend to think of the day of the Lord and think about the end of the world, which the church has pretty consistently said, no, nah, it's not the end of the world. And I want to just look one more time at what Malachi says in our readings. The day is coming, this terrible, dreadful day, blazing like an oven, when all the proud and the evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that will set them on fire. There's an and there. And the day is coming that will set them on fire, leaving neither root nor branch, says the Lord of hosts. A couple things. The root or branch, where have we heard about roots and branches before? Do you remember in the Old Testament? Uh, I mean, you have a Jesse tree. That's exactly it. Yep. That's, that's the only place I can think of where that shows up. And that's in reference, if you remember, that was in reference to Israel herself. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, was like this big tree that because of its sin was cut down. But even though it was felled, this is in Isaiah 6, I think, right? Even though this big tree that God had been building has been felled, there's still a root. There's a stump and a branch is shooting forth. All is not lost, right? There, there's still hope for Israel. Even when all seems lost, even when everything seems obliterated, there's always this little, little sprig of hope. But it's juxtaposed here with evil and the evildoers and sin. There's not going to be a stump or a shoot or a branch left. They're getting a stump grinder out. It's stump grinders coming out like there is nothing left. And what it's saying is the evil that exists, the sin that seems to rule the world, it's not like Israel, which will be cut down, but will still remain, will be rebuilt. Sin will be obliterated is what it's getting at. And I think there's a, a clear juxtaposition there. And it talks about this day in which it talks about the evildoers, but this will be stubble, neither root nor branch, nothing left. And it will be a day when we will be set on fire or someone, it says, will be set on fire. So the question is, what is the day of the Lord for the, for the, for the church? Because we don't believe it's simply the end of the world. It's not just the end of days. And what the early church fathers said was, no, wait a second. Holy cow. When is it that 
the um, what does it say? Oh, it's it's not this. When is it that basically corruption is taken to task? When is everything it says in, in Malachi? Um, if people don't actually, this is kind of the other key. It says if people don't listen to Elijah, right? He's gonna come. He's gonna say all these things. He's gonna try to bring people's hearts back. But if he doesn't, if they don't listen, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Which is also said back in Isaiah, that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the land will be laid waste. And you cannot separate the concept of land, Israel, without the concept of the king of Israel. The king represents the whole nation. And there's really only one point in salvation history when Israel receives the fullness of punishment for sin and curse and obliteration. It's not the Babylonian exile because there's still remnant. There's still they're still left. The day that the of the Lord that's being talked about here has always been believed is actually the day of the crucifixion. That's the day that Jesus takes on all of it because people don't listen to John the Baptist. Right. They don't bring the hearts of the children back to their fathers and fathers back to the children and all of our hearts back to God. It is not listened to. It's ignored. It's trampled underfoot. So what happens? Well, Jesus then comes and takes all of the corruption and punishment and curse onto his body. And after that happens, what happens? Well, fire comes. The day that was coming that will set them on fire. And could it be that the fire that Malachi is referring to is not the punishment? The fire is actually the restoration because that's what comes at Pentecost when the church then sees the fruit of what has happened. Yeah. Which, uh, that's a lot to kind of navigate through. This is one of the hardest books, I think, in the Bible to kind of figure out, okay, what does this mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the the beauty of... Being able to see both the the kind of the fullness of the mystery of Christ lived out in his crucifixion and then uh, ascension and descent of the Holy Spirit right. as the last promise before we actually encounter him. And then really, I mean, isn't that the the bracket of, of, the, of the Christ event is the fact that he had to ascend back to the Father so that the Spirit right. could come? Because that's, right. that's kind of the encapsulation of the full mystery. So like the last that's word the is... the enthronement. Yeah, but we don't really understand mm. that at this point in time. I mean, like that's the... I mean, that's the human condition is that the Lord is preparing us mm-hmm. to really go through the crucifixion Right. So that the the virtues and the beautiful things that he's actually developing within us can actually bear fruit yes. in the lives of, of our people, of, is, of the world. And what does that fruit look like? Well, in the early church, it looked like a raining of fire coming down. Well, it looks Pentecost. like it now, man. It looks like it now. But I mean, explicitly at Pentecost, that was the fruit of it. And, but, and we, we're not talking you, Molotov cocktails. No, we're not talking Molotov cocktails. Not necessarily. Just heavenly Molotov cocktails. Yeah, that's there's something. Weird. There's, that's weird. Yeah, I, was, I thought there was mileage there. Um, but what you said is actually important because I actually couldn't think of the exact right segue into the psalm. But say again, what, what did you say about the ascension? Well, this just is now. This is the thing: is that is that the psalm? What is it celebrating? Because like we're, we're saying, let the floods clap their hands, let the sea roar, and all that fills it, and the world, and those who dwell in it, and let the hills sing together. That there's a certain sense in which. Um, here's the land and what is it doing? It's, it's actually, what a floods are, floods are always traditionally this e- expression that we're being reduced back to chaos for, for the new rebuilding. And that's actually right. what Malachi is pointing towards is saying that the crucifixion and then the rebuilding. So we have these two things. Yeah, but you talked about the ascension. 
which is uh, this is all true right but in my my reading on the background of psalm 98 there was also a context for psalm 98 liturgically in the old testament which was it was a celebration of the the kingly reign of the lord the enthronement so to speak of the lord and i didn't well, know he how takes to, his seat at the right hand of the father which is the, the ascension Right. So you cannot separate the crucifixion, resurrection from the ascension to the Father when he takes his throne. So the day of the Lord, when he takes all of this on, leads to the resurrection of the Lord, which leads to the enthronement, which is ultimately what Psalm uh, 98 is pointing toward. We celebrate the enthronement. We've seen all of this. We've seen the flood and all of these things, but they point in some way to God's enthronement. And I found something really interesting about the structure of Psalm 98, which doesn't totally come out because we just get you know bits and pieces of it. Right. But it's the the whole of Psalm 98 is, is split into three stanzas, right? Which basically it's like you know when you throw a, a rock in a pond and it ripples outwards. Yeah. The three stanzas of Psalm 98 are like ripples of of God's enthronement, right? So stanza number one is all about the worshiping congregation at the temple, people worshiping God in his temple. Stanza number two is about all of the nations of the earth worshiping God. And then stanza number three goes out to all of creation worships God. So we at the temple and the liturgy, then all of the nations, and then all of creation is meant to see the enthronement of God. And so what Psalm 98 is doing, even in its structure, is pointing toward what the Catholic Church, quite frankly, is the fulfillment of. We've moved from the temple where Jesus goes, the temple veil is ripped, he takes on the temple in his person, and that is meant to go out to all the nations who are then baptized, which is meant to go to all of creation, which is groaning out for the revealing of these things. That's actually what Psalm 98 is, which I thought was kind of cool, the, yeah. the, the ripple effect. I'd never, I'd never known that about Psalm 98. Yeah, that's really powerful and beautiful. So when it talks about the Lord coming to rule the earth with justice, you can't separate that from how he comes to rule the world, which is choosing to become a slave, a servant, and to take on the curse of the day of the Lord. And that leads to all of the earth, all of the heavens, all of the earth, everything seeing his enthronement and his his reign, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's good news, bad news. Which, <laughs> you know, leads us into Second Thessalonians. Which uh, also takes a little bit of unpacking, right? Well, and it's th th this is also like, to, it's the, also the end of the letter of Thessalonians. The second one. Yeah, the second one. Yeah, which is important because, so Paul wrote another letter to Thessalonians at the beginning, First Thessalonians, right? <laughs> um, and this is interesting, what because this second. one kind of frustrates me. Because oh. without the proper context, this... I don't know, maybe you can make a case this doesn't make sense, or it sounds like it's saying something that it's not. Okay. So what it says is, brothers and sisters, you know how one must imitate us. You you know how you ought to imitate me and, and, and my um, uh, posse, <laughs> right? Paul and Timothy and, and you know, his, his group. For we did not act in a disorderly way among you, nor did we eat food received free from anybody. We worked for what we had. On the contrary, in toil and drudgery, night and day we worked, so as not to burden any of you. Not that we don't have the right. I mean, we were your guests. You could have fed us, but we didn't want to be freeloaders. We didn't want to be perceived as being freeloaders. Rather, we wanted to present ourselves as a model for you so that you may imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, we instructed you that if anyone was unwilling to work, neither should he eat. We hear that some of you are conducting yourselves in a disorderly way. 
not keeping busy, but minding the busyness of others. It actually says being busybodies in Greek, which is funny. But it, the busybody is also, it's, it's actually, it, it has the uh, same root as walking around. Really? Yeah, which is interesting because the the line six, which is the one that's before where we get, mm. it says, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness yeah. and not in accord with the tradition you received with us. Uh, so when he's saying acting like a busybody, what, what, what happens is that they're walking in idleness right. in a tradition you didn't receive. Okay. So it's not out of the blue, though. And so here's the context. First Thessalonians. Uh, Paul set up. So one of the things the church in Thessaloniki was was struggling with, there are a bunch of pagan converts. They were not primarily Jewish. They were primarily Gentile, non-Jews. And they're really struggling with this idea both of the afterlife, that wait, we get bodies again after we die? And like what what? What are you talking about? And this idea that, wait, Jesus is coming back? What's that gonna look like? What do you what do you mean Jesus is coming again? He's gonna do all these things. They're confused by this, right? As anybody would be if you're hearing it for the first time, right? So Paul writes 1 Thessalonians talking about what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again. And what we're told is that that letter was either ignored or totally misunderstood. And there's a whole lot of people that seem to have thought that what Paul is saying is, oh, Jesus is coming back like right now. Therefore, if Jesus is really coming back now, which is always a possibility, but if Paul is saying he's coming back, I'm going to quit my job. I don't need to work. I don't need to work for my food because he's coming back at any second. So I'm just going to hang around and be idle and not do work and kind of be a freeloader because who cares? He's coming back any second. So I don't need to go to work anymore. I don't need to do my job. And I'm going to kind of be a busybody and be like, "How? what do you guys do? Are you guys ready? Like kind of being annoying to everybody about this, not quite urgency, but, but um, urgency isn't the right word because we should always have an urgency. But it's this idea that, yeah, I'm cool. I'm just going to wait around because it's happening in it's any second. It's excusism. Excusism. Yeah, maybe that's it's, it. It's basically, it's like, okay, I'm using the Lord coming back as an excuse to not right. do anything. Right. It's the, like, I'm not going to do my homework. So it's just, it's not, it's not freeloadism. The parousia ate my homework. The paris. that's the title of the podcast. <laughs> I love it when we, that's a yeah. good, come on, that's a good title. That's a really good title. The par- parousia is the Greek word for the second coming. But, so it's just, it's not. He's not railing against um, idleness or freeloaderness, freeloaderness, freeloading, in a in a generic, abstract way. He's like, no, you guys totally don't. You're actually taking advantage. It's not just even just excusism. It's you're taking advantage of the parousia for your own benefit, so that you don't have to do anything, so you can freeload. It's there's a very specific context about how we totally misunderstand. And this is where, and you always remind me of this, this is where the church's paradox of, I mean, frankly, Jesus could come back at any second. He might. So the church always, the perennial uh, job of the church is to be prepared for Jesus to come back at any moment and also be prepared for Jesus not to come back for a thousand more years to carry that balance of the urgency and also the stability of, but I'm, and that's what Paul's saying. He's like, he might come back. He might not come back anytime soon. So just do your job. Mind your business. Do your thing. Keep working. Eat your food. Like, don't use Jesus' coming as an excuse to jump ship and say, well, heck with all of it. You know, this is useless, which is, this is where, quite frankly, and not to take this in a different direction, but this is where the church's social justice teachings all kind of come from. That we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And so until he does, we are as faithful and we work as hard as possible. 
because he may come back today. He may come back in a thousand years. And when he comes, he's going to ask us for an account of what we've done with what he gave us. Why didn't you care for the poor? Oh, we thought you were coming back. We didn't think it mattered. Why didn't you do these things? Why didn't you, you know, care for your brothers and sisters that were suffering in these ways? Oh, because we thought you were coming. We didn't think it mattered. If Christianity is, a lot of people live Christianity as escapism, right? I just got to wait it out until Jesus comes again. Then he's going to sweep me off to heaven and I can be the heck out of here. That's my Christianity. But that's not Christianity. It's, no, I will work as a laborer in the field, in the Lord's field, to give him the fruit that has been produced when he comes. And say, look, we've been faithful. We, we're not escapists. We're not just waiting for the day when we can get the heck out of here. We are tending his garden until he comes back. Sorry about all this. <laughs> Sorry. There's a lot going on over there. There's a lot going on with your mic. There. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think there's a practicality to it, too. Not just don't be freeloaders. Yes, don't be freeloaders. But also don't think of Christianity as an escape from anything. It's that it's not that, well, I can just float off and, and be away from all of this pain and suffering someday and go to heaven. It's no, no. Christianity believes that God will actually take all of this and the pain and suffering and everything else, and he'll actually transform it. He won't take you away from it. He will come into it and transform it into something beautiful and profound. Which is the three stanzas of the song. Yes, exactly right. You Sorry, know, I got yeah, exactly, overly excited yeah. about that. Exactly, that ultimately the, this, yes. that effect, this affects everything. Yes. And, that, and right. so that you can engage everything, and engaging everything is important. Right. It's not that you just right. get to just bail out and go to be a, a brain on a in a jar, and <laughs> and 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 stop living a real life or a baby on a cloud playing a harp, like the right. medieval baby heads angels. Those always <laughs> creep me out. Those medieval the baby, baby head heads, angels. man. <laughs> Those you are, know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But to the degree that that's our image of heaven, that's our image of the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, we're, I mean, it's it's artistic license and they're beautiful, but. You know, there's something lacking there. But I think the world sees a lot of Christians who act like we're escapists. And so, so Scott, you made reference to this. Uh, I think that, that to segue into our our gospel. Okay. You That's made a sterling way to do that. Uh, no? Nothing? No. Sterling engine segues? Oh, wow. It was that, a deep one. I mean, that dude, had layers I didn't even it. know that you knew about the sterling engine. I thought you were the... Uh, you tell me regularly when I make segue jokes on the podcast. <laughs> I figured I mean, you were the only I, one who's going to appreciate I that one. Neil, Neil's going to appreciate that one. Or he's um, scoffing at it. But this is anyway, the thing. Okay, okay so the, a great way to segue into... A sterling way to segue. A sterling let's, way. Let's give credit where credit's A sterling way to segue <laughs> into you. the gospel yeah. is... Um, I've totally forgot. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> man. Hold on, hold on. Like, okay, me, all me, things, me, creation, escapism... Um, Oh, uh, it, is that uh, you? You you made mention of of my principle, which is, um, act as if mm, Jesus is yes. coming right now. He's coming today, right? And he's not coming, and plan for him to not come for another ten thousand years, right? So so yeah. that you can yeah. build in a sure foundation with consistency and yeah. accuracy and goodness, kindness, love, and patience. Yes, all the virtues. Yes. Um. But then w- what happens is that um, it's so easy to think that. What that preparation really is. <laughs> I'm still smiling at the parousia ate my homework. <laughs> I, I just, I'm delighted. By yeah, the parousia ate my homework. Is that um, we, we look and we say, oh, okay, I know what it looks like to build the kingdom for 10,000 years. We're going to make nice mm-hmm. churches. 
Okay. We're going to make um, beautiful things, and we're going to actually um, elevate creation. Are you saying that tongue-in-cheek? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because there's, there's something to it. There's, some, there's something good to it, too. We actually are, are consistent, but yeah. then we, we're humble about our consistency. Mm. And this is actually what's so hard is that the foreshadowing, so the temple, this, this, mm. Luke is all about the destruction of the temple. He says... Uh, this chapter is. Yeah, and he says... Um, uh, it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. And he said, as for things which you see, the days are coming when there shall not be well here one stone upon another that's not going to be thrown down. And they said, when is this going to be? And he said, when is this going to take place? And he says, then he goes into a long explanation. Now, this is really th- funny because it's coming after the widow's mite, who she put coins in. And then later on, he does actually give you a time, by the way. Well, just one clarification. They don't simply ask when will this will happen. They say, what will the signs that accompany it be? What should we be looking for? So number two questions, right? When will it be? Octahedrons. When? Uh, oct- uh, octahedrons. Uh, no, I, I mean, uh, octagons. Stop signs. Stop signs. What are uh, the stop was, signs? That wasn't funny. No, it was funny. Know. Oh, it was funny. No, it's, don't, don't, <laughs> don't pander to I me. I didn't get it. I'll it's be okay. honest with you. A well, si- it's a sign. It's a stop sign. No, what I, are I'm, the signs going to be? Stop octagons. Be, They'll be red octagon, octagon. octagonal. Yeah, it's not funny. So <laughs> let's just drop it, okay? It just drop it. Well, it is important though. So he literally just finished pronouncing curse on the temple for becoming a den of robbers and thieves, and says this this is going down. And then the the clueless apostles, God bless them, they're like walking around. They're like, look at how pretty it is. <laughs> look at all the buildings and they're scaffolding because they're doing stuff. And Jesus, isn't it pretty? And imagine going to the big city. You don't get to go to the city very often, right? You're in the big city. Jesus is there. You're like, Jesus, look at the big, pretty buildings. And he's like, it's all going to be destroyed. Did, and they're like, oh. Yeah, just, I think I'm going like to use the prettiness. I'm going to use this as a capital campaign <laughs> uh, slogan. Yes. Well done. <laughs> There shall be, uh, uh, there days will come when there shall not be left here one stone that will not be thrown down. Oh, jeez. I don't think that's a good capital campaign. I agree. That's a terrible <laughs> capital campaign. Tell Jesus that. Yeah. Well, um, he's making way for something else, though. So, I mean. Unless unless you actually want to do a build, new building. Go back to the widow's mite, though, because you had a really important point that I, I took you off track on. Oh, the widow's mite. Uh, everybody's putting their gifts in the treasury, and he saw a poor widow put in two copper coins. Yeah. And uh, and we which we don't get in this this series of it's readings. It's in Mark, right? No, it's is it in Luke as well. It's literally right here in Luke because you know Mark makes Mark makes a Mark and sandwich out of it, right? An and intercalation, intercalation, which is just basically saying like this is worth two pennies, <laughs> not the big money. Oh, well, that's interesting. She gave a lot, a ton, and she's showing that. Yes. But then on one, on another level, it's just like that's. Don't oh, that's in, interesting. You know, don't put a huge investment into this because there's going to come a time when one stone is not going to be on top oh. of another. We're building a new temple, bro. That's interesting. That's yeah. yeah sorry, I, it's I'm, kind of a strange thought. I've just never thought about it from that point of view. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, like like that's the right amount of money to give <laughs> to <laughs> right. this. Well, it's capital campaign. It, just yeah. give a couple pennies because. But the only counter to that is Mark said Mark has Jesus saying she's given her whole life. Like it's her whole bios that she put in those two copper coins, right? Which is, but but that but it's her life that yes. she gives, not the coinage. Ah, good, good, good. That's good. That's the right thing. I was actually struggling with she how to reconcile. Give, she wants to gives her. Give, she wants to give her life, 
and and yeah. properly yeah. that's what properly you, so. what you should be doing and Jesus give holds her up life. as an example yes right but but then but yeah. I don't know it's no it's no a, it's a weird thought that I had what's funny so in Mark the way that Mark sort of tells the pieces the story together you have there's this this concept called a Mark and sandwich right which which is uh, Mark will sandwich together sometimes one major point with two parallel stories about it right and he'll it's it's kind of like a um, chiasm but it's the opposite. Um, in a chiasm, all the all the all the um, valuable stuff is in the middle, right? The meat of the sandwich. In a Markin sandwich, the the meat's in the bread. That's a, that's a convoluted. So basically, you have two hamburgers with a piece of bread in between. Kind of. Yeah, that's kind of yeah, very well done. But so Mark actually tells this story. So he tells the widow's mite, the widow's two copper point coins. Everyone else is you know trying to make a big show about look at all we're putting in. She puts in virtually nothing to the eyes of the world. But Jesus says, but she's given her whole life, her whole bios, literally in Greek. And then about a chapter and a half later, you have a story of the woman who comes in when Jesus is staying at the house in Bethany with Martha and Mary, mm-hmm. who pours the the uh, the ointment all over him. And the apostles are like, oh my gosh, that was so valuable. We could have sold it to to, to feed the poor, right? Or, or care for, like she just wasted all this valuable oil, which he actually says costs like 300 denarii, which the equivalent in modern terms would be like $40,000 or something. I mean, she literally, which is probably, I mean... This woman in Mark is probably pouring out the dowry her family gave her for her future, for her life. So you have basically the story of two women who basically pour their entire lives out for two different temples, both of which are going to be destroyed. After the widow's might, Jesus goes on to talk about how the temple will be destroyed. After the woman anoints Jesus with her whole life, he goes on to be destroyed. Both temples will be obliterated. Only one temple will rise back up. And Jesus is essentially saying, be careful where you're putting your temple affections or your, your, your loyalties, I suppose, right? Which is, it's a, it's a fascinating juxtaposition there. But the one thing that's so important about what Luke is saying, or what Jesus is saying in Luke, is exactly how you brought it up. They're looking at the temple. They're looking at how beautiful and marvelous. Look at all the stones, which at the time, Herod, who was not the legitimate king, he had bought it off of Caesar. He's trying to beautify the temple to make everybody like him more because he thinks if I can associate myself with the temple and people kind of think of me in like temple terms because I'm renovating it, I can be like a new Solomon or something like that. And people will, will accept me as legitimate. It's just show. It's all just an act. He's trying to renovate this thing to make himself look better. And Jesus is like, no, it's not about this building. Great. Herod, cool. You're doing some renovations. That's awesome. But this is going to be obliterated. And then, like you say, they say, okay, two questions. When is it, when is it going to happen? And when are going to be the signs that accompany it? What signs will there be? And that's when Jesus launches into what a lot of people view as like this end of the world discourse. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. Famine, persecution. Stars will fall from the sky. All heck is going to break loose. And that's what you need to be. But the time is not yet, he says. We forget sometimes when you're reading through this very end of the worldy kind of thing that they asked a specific question. When is the temple going to be destroyed? And what will the signs be? And he says, wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, persecution, famine, earthquake, all of which in 66 to 70 AD, about 40 years later, when the temple is destroyed by the Romans, all those things happen. A nation rises up against them. They fight back. There are persecution. There is famine. Rome cuts off their food source for three years in the city of Jerusalem. All these things take place. There are earthquakes. The world is turned upside down. But on another level... 
what he's pointing to is when I go to the cross, it's going to be the long foretold day of the Lord, which I will bring all of the punishment and curse of all of sin for all of humanity, all of the wars, all of the rumors of wars, all the persecution, all the famine, all the natural disasters, everything I will take upon myself on that day. And that's what you should be looking for. Open your eyes. I mean, the constant warning throughout the Gospels is keep your eyes open. Watch. Be aware. Don't fall asleep because you might actually miss it. So Jesus is literally talking about three things simultaneously. He's talking about the crucifixion that's coming. He's talking about the brick and mortar building that will be destroyed and many Jewish people along with it because they've put their loyalties in the wrong king who will be killed when the temple is destroyed. But also, like you said, the temple was a microcosm of the whole world. It had pools of water that represented the oceans. It had flora and fauna on the walls. It was meant to represent the garden of all of creation. And so he's also saying what happens to the temple will eventually happen to all of the earth. But just like the temple of my body is going to be destroyed and then reborn and resurrected, so too everything around you. We are not escapists because even though this world will pass away, we will have a new heavens and a new earth that God will raise the veil on that we will live in for all of eternity because God loves what he has made. And so just like you and I are all going to die, we also believe that we will be risen from the dead. So too, the earth is going to pass away, but it will be risen again, glorified, resurrected, marvelous. And so... Don't slack off. Don't be a freeloader. <laughs> Do the work of the vineyard. Be a laborer because everything around us is worthy. That's why the psalm says all of creation is meant to recognize this because all of creation is wrapped up in the scheme of God's salvation. Everything from, right. he says, even the rocks will cry out if nobody else will. Even the stones will cry out because they too will be caught up in the, rev uh, the, the, the redemption of all. That's big. That's a lot of stuff. Hmm. <sighs> I'm kind of exhausted by it. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Is that's, it too abstract? That's where we just look and say, Jesus, send the Spirit. <laughs> right. Just send the right. Spirit and uh, you do it all. And help us stay awake. Yeah. You do it all, but keep our eyes open because we don't want to miss it. I mean, the whole, the whole point is that, what, a couple days later, most of them are going to miss it. They're going to miss the day of the Lord that had been foretold for hundreds of years that he will embody on the cross. They will be hiding someplace else during because mm -hmm. they missed it. They didn't see the signs. But yet, what? God is still faithful. He's merciful. And he includes them anyway. He's like, yeah, you missed the day of the Lord. It was crazy. It was wild, you guys. But it's cool because now you get to live in the fire. Now you get to live in the days that are lit up by the love of God that has preceded the day, uh, pro, pre, proceeded, come after uh, the day of the Lord. You get to live in the fruit of it when all of creation sings for joy. Mm. And we're still waiting. And we're still waiting for Christ to come back. We're still waiting for all of this to be culminated and the veil to be lifted. So don't fall asleep is what the church is saying. Be ready today and right. be prepared for 10,000 more years. I should, maybe the word waiting isn't good. It's anticipating. Anticipating, that's better. Which is because, what Advent is all about, right? right? Which we're getting closer to. Which is, this is the thing is that, because uh, waiting, it just sounds like eat, drink, Boring. and YOLO. <laughs> YOLO.
yeah. eat, drink, and YOLO because, because uh, you know, we, we could just be busybodies then. And this yes. is the truth is yes. that like yeah. we can just bail out on, on yeah. our responsibilities in our lives. And the truth is, is that I don't want to have to give the excuse when I'm at the pearly gates, the Paracy, my homework. And anticipation suggests something outside of ourselves. Right. I'm anticipating something other. Right. Anticipation doesn't, just because you're getting a package from UPS doesn't mean you stop working. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You just yeah. get, you know. But I'm I'm mindful. I'm I'm aware. I'm watching. I'm waiting. Right. Well, not waiting, not waiting. I'm anticipating. <laughs> anticipating. Hey, we anticipate you guys coming back ah. and listening at Lanky Guys Live. Mm. It's going to be awesome. And um, December 5th, yep. 1030 in the AM, Mountain Time. Yep. And if we have a couple of uh, reruns, then uh, just love us anyway. Love us anyway. Okay. Bye. We'll see you next time. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.